Arthur Penn on the critical beating Bonnie and Clyde took before being recognized as an American classic. William Freakin on why he rates his box office bomb Sorcerer above The Exorcist and The French Connection. Italian great Bernardo Bertolucci of Last Tango in Paris fame on how critics misunderstood his incest melodrama Luna. I'm Lloyd Sachs, reviving my old Sachs and the Cinema segment on Chicago Radio to present a series of rare, intimate, never-before-heard conversations with great filmmakers. In these chats, recorded on my cassette recorder back in the 80s, you'll also hear Halloween creator John Carpenter on what it was like to be called a pornographer of violence, Monty Python alumnus Terry Gilliam on going rogue to get his version of Brazil shown in America, and French auteur Bertrand Tavernier on the French art of stealing from American classics. Plus, you'll hear Bill Forsyth on putting Scottish cinema on the map, and in a rare one-on-one interview, British legend Michael Powell on dealing with a studio that just didn't get The Red Shoes, his magnificent study of artistic obsession. You won't want to miss any of these wide-ranging, completely unscripted interviews in which eight great directors share personal truths and the secrets of their success. We continue our series with Michael Powell. No one but no one made movies like this visionary British director. With his Hungarian screenwriting partner Emmerich Pressburger, Powell made fantasy seem real and reality seem fanciful. He took you places you could never imagine, whether turning a British backlot into the Himalayas in Black Narcissus, staging a courtroom trial in heaven in a matter of life and death, or turning a ballet drama, The Red Shoes, into a meditation on the obsessive nature of art. I can't tell you how thrilled I was to get the chance to chat with Pal, who was 81 when we met in his Chicago hotel room. He was in town writing his memoirs while his wife, the great film editor Thelma Schoonmaker, worked here on his friend and ardent supporter Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money. He certainly had plenty of experiences to remember including the shock and outrage over his perverse 1960 thriller Peeping Tom, which all but ended his career. But though he hadn't made a film in decades, he entertained hopes of getting back behind the camera through his association with another admirer, Francis Ford Coppola. I start off asking Pal why it was so difficult to get the green light to make the red shoes. The red shoes was a failure from the beginning because they didn't believe it. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Show business, you've got to believe it. Why didn't they believe in red shoes? Didn't understand it. Uh-huh. So they, they simply could not understand it. This, this obsession with art, this, in other words, that you. I put it to them that for years people have been saying, go and die for this, that, and the other, your, your country, your this, culture. 
And now I say, go out and die rot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, I see, yeah. And they didn't like yeah. it. Yeah. They just didn't understand it. And all this obsession of all these uh, clever people, you know, composers, and all contributing in their way, in indirect way. To, you know, this treatment which the public understood at once. The public understood the film the moment they saw it. They loved it. They never had the slightest trouble with the public. We had trouble with Rank, who had given us the money to make it, and his partner, John Davis, who was quite a different cup of tea. Rank, we liked Rank very much. And the, uh, our American partners, who undertook to distribute the film in America, they, couldn't, they, they thought it wouldn't make a sense. Huh. It's only when they took a small cinema off-Broadway, the Bijou, and ran it, and it ran for a year, and then it ran for two years, and they thought, well, maybe there's something in it. Uh -huh. Yeah. You've got to believe in it, you see. Sure. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And art is all the method. Well, what what effect um, did the, the whole reaction to Peeping Tom... Oh, ruin, Obviously, it ruin. had a bad effect on your career in terms ruin of... Me. Yeah, I mean, for... You made a few films after, I guess, a couple for TV. With or? great difficulty. No, I made yeah. two in Australia. Oh, Australia, yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought a bestseller, best-selling Australian novel, mm -hmm. went out and raised some money in Australia, came back and raised the other half in the and made it, and it was a huge commercial success. But not the kind of film that would go in England at that uh -huh. time. In England thought and still thinks Australians are a little bother. <laughs> and it was a lovely film. I had great fun making it. And which so one was that? It's called They're a Weird Mob. Uh -huh. And then uh, James Mason liked a story called Age of Consent about a painter uh -huh. and a girl. We went back later on with him and Helen Mirren. It's a charming film. Slight. Yeah. Well, were you? Were you uh, I mean, I would be incredibly bitter after that. Was did it take a while for you to really? No, get I was never bitter. I understood. No. I understood. Was uh, mm. you have to work with people like that. But I mean, you weren't the real. I, I didn't handle them very well. Actually, mm. somehow put them in the wrong position somehow. I was too inclined to say, well, if you're so stupid as that, goodbye. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you say that more than twice, it is goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Peeping Tom just uh, worked on two or even more levels so well. I mean, on the one level, it was this well, the, thriller that the mass public could enjoy. On the yeah. other sense, it was that really disturbing meditation about art and filmmaking and particular, which at the end, in fact, you know, you should, you should, you would be glad to know that um, when you're, when Peeping Tom was shown at, at a theater here, I'd say around six years ago, there was, there were a couple of fellows who were running a revival house, uh, which is no longer, that they made sure that when Peeping Tom faded at the end, that the kind of orange, red-orange faded right into uh, uh, the screen was lit the same color that the film ended. Oh, really? So it kind of went through, you know, just... Uh, it was, Very good. Yeah, yeah. It was a 
No, I, I had a, I've had experiments with that when I was Louis Rank, you know, in sympathetic color, uh, having photoelectric cells around the screen, so that with, for color homes, uh, the, the screen changes in tone, the border of the screen, uh -huh. in sympathy with the color on the screen, but they, they didn't go on with it. Well, these guys came pretty close. It wasn't perfect, but... Yeah. Well, it, was, it would make a tremendous difference. Yeah. Because the, the last scene is so terrific. It's a six or seven minute scene, and we shot it in one, just in one take. They said, aren't you going to shoot closer? Yeah. It's the rhythm of the scene that gets you. Mm -hmm. So, well, so here we have a, a, a filmmaker at the height of his powers with Peeping Tom and, and the yeah. other ones you made. And like. couldn't get any money. Couldn't get any money. No. Um, so, how, I mean, it's been a number of years since then. I mean, have you... Uh, oh, yes. Well, how did you, I mean... Uh, Peeping Tom was made in 59. Yeah. And then the Australian films followed. The last film I made was in 1962, I, I think. Uh, and then I did a children's film with Emery, which was, which was great fun. Four children, very small budget, about sixty thousand, uh, full of tri tri tricks, and uh, that's all. Uh, do you um, do you see your influence, like in 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 the films of? For instance, um, Scorsese. I mean, are, are there things you see? No, I'm not Scorsese. He 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 claims he's influenced a lot by uh -huh. definite shots and sequences, and, and possibly he is. But he's interpreted them in his way. Uh, yeah, or perhaps they've given him the strength to insist on doing it his way. Uh -huh. Do you see what I mean? I mean, if you see somebody bring off something which you know the ordinary uh, distributor or producer wouldn't allow you to do. Then that gives you courage you know, to go a little bit further. Yeah. Well, he's certainly... Um, in some ways, I mean, he is... A he's, kind a, of he's a poetic director. He's got a feeling. But he, he's also uh, obviously willing to, you know, push against whatever you know, the, the accepted notion of good taste is, or, or yeah. not good taste, but I found The King of Comedy to be a really a great film that, that a lot of people just couldn't find anything in. It, yeah, but lots of people think it's a great film now, too. Yeah, yeah. And it was so bad to treat the distributor there, you yeah. see. They, they, they don't believe in you, you know. There was the film. They only had to look at it, and they had to go out and sell it. Instead, they, they showed it various tryouts. You know, and they said, well, I'm afraid it's not going to make money to put it on the shelf. And that's not the way to handle a work of art. Now, what do you say to... I mean, when, He's when, wonderful. Uh, someone would, let's say, meet you and you're a very uh, distinguished and elegant man, and um, um, after they would see Peeping Tom, and they would come to you and say, how did, how did you make that film? What part of it? Do you have this dark side, or... What, where did that film come from in terms of your own personality? Uh, I mean, it really is a very kind of disturbing and uh, uh, assaultive almost kind of film. Uh, and it would, wouldn't seem to quite sit with the image that you present. Of course, I've known you for around an hour, but... <laughs> 
sermon for Prabhupada said. But it's, it's partly um, had a lot, been around a lot, a lot of mm. experience, and nothing shocked me. Mm. And I don't want to shock anybody. What about the, how do you, how do you see the... It's a quality of detachment, I think, which when, when um, combined with a certain job, perhaps is shocking. How do you view the whole British... Uh, I've got no views about morals or anything. Yeah. And that's one of the things that makes the book interesting. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? down. How do you look upon the whole British movie uh, industry, what there is of it? And just in the, I mean, it seems... It's very bad. Yeah. Very bad. I mean, could not be worse. Is it just because They really are... handed the whole thing over to BBC and television. Yeah. Well, uh, and the and the good writers don't write for, for don't write home. If they do, they know they won't, they won't get paid, or they will, nobody will have the money to make them. Uh, I don't know. There's a complete blank so far. Well, just the whole mentality. It seems so much is geared towards you know the polished status British film mm. that there's nobody who's really there are a few I should say but the, on the whole the sense of really people shooting from their hip you know really no. testing things making films yeah I agree yeah. I, when I was over you know two months ago I, I proposed to say I'd like to make one more film oh really what yeah. I said well first of all it's a horror film very very Second thing, I want to make it as a silent film, with titles, but, but lots of music and effects and things like that. And then I probably shall make it in black and white as well. By this time, they, they were through the door. Yeah, probably in the next room. Well, I don't know. They're probably making it. Okay. I didn't tell them the idea. Right? Uh. I gave them. The, the reason for each one of those points I made. I think the whole business needs to be cleaned out <laughs> in this way anyway. Because the essential thing about film is, I would say the, the thing, is the two eyes of the person. In film you can photograph what people are thinking, not what they're doing. And this is no longer, it's all forgotten about. Because of these pictures on the wall of television. Hmm. I think I probably will make that film later, but I, I got to finish the book first. <laughs> I got a very good idea. What about you and Pressburger? Did you, when you first got together, was there an instant? Oh no, an instant. It was wonderful because there was a story conference, and uh -huh. nobody knew he was coming, uh, and all that he'd read the script. And Alex said. I've asked uh, Emery to uh, be here because he has some thoughts about this. Actually, they'd agreed a completely different script, you see, a different line, a better part for Connie Vyther. And uh, Emery would like to uh, talk about them. So we all looked at that. 
the producer and the writer of the original script was all there too. Emery produced a little piece of paper and gradually unfolded it as he reeled off his notes. I listened spellbound. <laughs> He'd completely uh, turned the story upside down and given it the most wonderful suspense right from the beginning, not from the middle. You know. And he'd made a marvelous part for Conrad Wright. And all, all the changes he'd done were just right. You know. And I knew the islands very well, cause, so I could see just what I could do with local color and atmosphere and things like that. Meanwhile, Emery was, and the, the people over there were turning green and purple, and the, and the, the poor writer who had written this script, you know, which was just masses of dialogue. Mm -hmm. That's all they knew about in those days, English writers, dialogue. Dialogue isn't film. Yeah. <laughs> dialogue is two shots. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, then uh, Alex didn't even let it finish. He said, well, that all sounds very really nice. Why don't you and Michael uh, uh, go and find Connie Wright? Valerie helps them. And we'll work out the script with them. And a partnership was born. Mm. Fifteen pictures followed. Fifteen pictures. <laughs> now, it, it, and really, this partnership business is very important. Uh, it's only really in finishing this book, which is all about the partnership, uh -huh. and uh, just the sort of thing where Emily was much cleverer than I, am, more subtle than I. Am. Things were. Uh, I, 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 I could dream of things in a different way. But it was really this partnership which was uh -huh. fascinating. And, and then we annoyed everybody intentionally by this written, produced, and directed by. Uh -huh. Because whenever people would say to us, why in that order? They'd say, because you've got to have a good story first, otherwise don't fucking well make it. <laughs> and then produce because you've got to have money. As far as we know, all a producer ever does is find the money. Doesn't do anything else. And directed, I directed. <laughs> uh -huh. Anything else you want to know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, did the uh, you see what I mean? Yeah. Did the and that that, uh, that that meant that as long as we were on top, doing very well, that went very well. When we started to make a few mistakes, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, well, just so. Did the dynamics of the partnership stay the same from picture to picture, or did you find that on some films, let's say, you were contributing more to the script than he? I mean, did the balance, I guess, stay the same from picture, or was it constantly changing? Very interesting. Um, I think it was all right, as long as we worked from original stories. Uh -huh. uh, when we didn't, uh, the first one was the first one we did from a book was Black Narcissus, and that I did bring off, and Emery did a good job on adapting it. Uh -huh. But uh, it's a very fine novel anyway. So already I was feeling, what the hell is a We've done all these original things, and uh, Emmerich's a wonderfully original writer. Uh, why does he want to start doing films and books? Uh, mm -hmm. I hate to have uh, 
image of a book in my mind when I'm making a film. Yeah. And, but it, it, we got away with it. It was a beautiful film. I made a basic decision, which was to do it all in the studio, not go to India. And th this really saved it. And it made it a, a particular kind of film. Yeah. The author didn't like it, rumor, rumor got. Uh -huh. I like her, I like her very much. She's a very good writer. Yeah. You know, The River, sure. The Green Gage, Summer. Yeah. And she's done some television tours. But she's very good. And clever woman as well. But then, when we went to Corda, uh, I tried to avoid doing the Scarlet Pimpernel. I didn't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I finally, it took a year to sort of suck me into it, whether I liked it or not, because Rank didn't understand uh, the red shoes at all. And, uh, they thought they'd lost all their money. So we thought we'd better go back to Cora, where at least we, we we knew how to handle Alex, or thought we did. He could run rings around us and negotiate. And so we found ourselves making another film of, of a book, and then another film hmm. of a book. And the, the only time I managed to escape from this thing closing around me, I thought, was Tales of Hoffman. Uh, I managed to sell everybody, including Alex, on the idea of the music being the master of the film. So the music, the music and the libretto was all recorded first, mm -hmm. and then filmed with dancers. And it was very successful. And he made money. Chichikov's Morishiro and the other guy. They'd both been in red shoes. But uh, I, I think as when we started to do more and more films from books instead of original ideas, I think we started to drift apart. Hmm. There's something about risking your neck entirely in uh, being a film, yeah, which, which yeah. is exhilarating. Yeah. It's nothing to do with how much money you have to spend. Because, uh, for instance, uh, matter of life and death costs quite a lot of money. Color, monochrome, David Zimmerman, probably 300,000 pounds in those days. Mm. And t almost 10 years later, when I, or when I was on my own, I made Peeping Tom for something like 120,000 pounds. You know, uh, in other words, less than half of what I'd made ten years before, so it gives you some idea, because of course all the prices have gone up television. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I had complete control of it again. You know, an yeah. original idea, an original story, everything meant something, and, and uh, I, I held, <laughs> held it like that. Boy, did you ever. <laughs> um, how, I mean, a film, I, I, I was just, uh, I've seen that a few times, but the first time I saw it, I was just uh, overwhelmed. It was very frightening and. Uh, oh, peeping down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was that a film, a kind of an idea that you'd had for a while? It seemed like it was so different from many of the other films that preceded it. That was a kind of film that you. Was, was such, no, such it an was. Extraordinary the, personal I was statement. looking for something that I personally wanted to do, uh -huh. and I. Uh, 
another producer, regular commercial chap, said, hey, Mickey, you all been one crazy people. A fellow came to see me the other day who used to work in codes in the war. And he did a code for me, which is a piece of genius. He's got the sort of mind you like. Why don't you see him? And so I met Leo, Leo Marx. And he had once tried to sell me an idea of a double agent. I don't want to. I'm interested uh -huh. in spies and double agents. What, what are you interested in? Personal films. Would you like to make a film about Freud? Yes, I would. So uh, next week uh, they announced that John Houston was making a film about Freud, and, which I believe he did. I never saw it. Yeah, uh, Montgomery Cliff, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I never saw it. Yeah. So that was that. And so a few weeks later, he said uh, he'd obviously been studying me, and he used to come and talk. Rather, he's rather a weird character. He'd been he, he wanted to be a psychoanalyst. Instead, he became a code breaker. Age of twenty, he was a very important code breaker. And they they have to have peculiar kinds of mind. And he said, I've got an idea about a young man who k kills girls with his camera. Does that interest you? I said, yes, that's me. Why? What? Why? Tell me. I could see it I'm once. Uh, what, a marvelous, uh -huh. what a marvelous idea it was. Uh, a camera feed. He gave it such a wonderful, uh, authentic build-up through uh -huh. the way the father distorted the child's mind. Oh, yeah. Well, that's... Oh, yeah, yeah. I had, from the beginning, such enormous compassion for this young man, you see. I think that's what shocked the critics so much. And uh, I wouldn't play anybody else's son, so I played mine, this little boy. I was just saying, I, I just had to ask you about how you terms of your career and I mean how you dealt with first of all some of the films of yours that were edited against your wishes I mean that the, the versions that came out were not the versions that you had in mind such as blimp which has mm. been restored um, and what happened I mean after peeping Tom the reaction was just so it's been one long struggle uh, with uh, a business that does not grow up I have grown up, <laughs> meanwhile, yeah. and I love it. I would, uh, would never want any other business. But there must have been tremendous frustration. I mean, the writing, of course, is it's good, because it, I'm writing about something that is in layers and layers of consciousness. Yeah. So it's sort of Prussian <laughs> autobiography. And of course, a, a filmmaker absolutely. Wonderful. <laughs> uh -huh. Meat and drink for an autobiography. If it's true, if it's a real one, my mind is real. You've been listening to a conversation with the legendary British director Michael Powell. Thanks to Rick Riggs and Handwritten Recording Studio for the production work, and Jeff Bradfield for the music. In our next podcast, I'll chat with Arthur Penn director of the game-changing masterpiece, Bonnie and Clyde. Join me. I'm Lloyd Sachs.